Well, today we uh, <clears throat> take the first step in a uh, thousand-mile journey walking through the Gospel of Mark. Um, so we're going to take uh, at least or about six semesters to walk through that. Um, and just to give you like a little preview, like we're going to spend like the next 10 weeks and we're just going to finish chapter one, right? And so you're thinking, man, that's going to take us like eight years, right? Uh, no, we'll start speeding it up uh, after chapter one. But, but we're going to start off with uh, just a, a little bit of background to the uh, Gospel of Mark. Uh, we're going to look at things like author and date and original audience because the Gospel of Mark was uh, written for us, but it wasn't written to us, right? In other words, it was written for everyone down through the ages and all around the world, but it was written specifically to uh, the first century church. So understanding some of the background will help us bridge the gap between our world in the 21st century and the first century uh, Mediterranean world that Mark wrote in. And so uh, just a little disclaimer, it's going to feel a little bit like a seminary, okay? Uh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not really sorry, but I just say that to be nice. <laughs> and if you don't like it, uh, well, the regular guy will be back next week, so come back again, okay? Um, so, uh, oh, and just another thing, too, is through this series of Mark, uh, we, uh, there's, uh, if, you, if you have questions or comments that you would like to ask uh, I'm, uh, that I'm going to incorporate into the upcoming series, there's a text number on the screen, on most of the screens there. You could just text it um, and ask questions, and, and some of those, I'll use some of those in the upcoming weeks, questions or comments that are, that are raised. Um, so we're going to start off with the author. Of Mark, okay? Uh, the title says in Greek, Euangelion kata markon, or the gospel of, according to, or by Mark. Mark is a figure that we read all over the New Testament. In the book of Acts, for example, while he was not one of the 12 disciples, he was a close associate uh, of the disciples, and he played an instrumental role in the formation of the early church from the very beginning. Now, we get some insight into how Mark came about to write this book. Uh, one of the earliest, earliest writings we have about the Gospel of Mark uh, was written by a bishop named Papias in 125 AD. And this is what he said um, about the Gospel of Mark. Mark became Peter's interpreter. Peter, who was one of the head disciples uh, following Jesus, uh, knew uh, Hebrew and Aramaic. And Mark, being educated in Jerusalem, could actually take that and translate it into Greek. So um, Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately all that he remembered. For Mark had not heard the Lord, nor had he followed him, but he followed Peter. For the one thing he gave attention, to leave out nothing of what he had heard and to make no false statements in them. In other words, while Peter was the eyewitness source behind uh, that inspired uh, everything that Mark wrote, Mark is the literary genius behind this gospel. Okay, so that gives us a snapshot of who Mark is. Moving on, let's talk about date. Mark is the earliest of all four gospel writers predating Matthew, Luke, and John. It was written in the middle of the 60s, which was a turbulent time of social change and revolution. And by the way, when I say 60s, that means 60 AD, not 1960s, right? Which was also a time of revolution and social change. 
And some of you bear the scars from that period, right? We're glad you're here. Um, During this time, 60s AD, uh, Israel was at war with Rome uh, in this thing called the Jewish Revolt, which I won't get into. And the Roman Empire was in the midst of of some massive upheaval. Uh, Again, Roman historian Tacitus tells us a little bit about the times and the the period uh, that he's writing. And this is what he says. The history in which I'm entering is that of a period rich in disasters, terrible with battles, torn by civil struggles, horrible even in peace. Four emperors fell by the sword. After Emperor Nero committed suicide, there there was no apparent heir, and so there were four emperors that rose and struggled for power. Uh, There were three civil wars, more foreign wars, and often both at the same time. And so you get the sense that, man, this is a really scary time to live. Barbarians were invading the empire. Roman armies fought one another for control. Assassinations were very common in those days. And lawlessness reigned throughout the streets of Rome. Now, uh, just, uh, and this was towards the end of the 60s, um, just a few years before that, the summer of 64, uh, I always want to say summer of 69, right? Uh, the summer of 64, and may, some of you may know the story, Rome suffered a terrible fire that burned for six straight days and seven nights, consuming about three quarters of the city of Rome. Um, and, and the people actually accused Emperor Nero, this is a painting depicting that fire in Rome, and, and there's Nero playing his fiddle in the background. They accused Nero Uh, for the devastation of the fire, claiming that he set that fire for his own amusement. So in order to deflect some of these accusations, what he did is he, Nero, laid blame for the fire on the Christians, who spoke of the coming of a new kingdom uh, under the rule of a new king. And so you could imagine some of those words were very threatening to the Roman authorities, Um, and uh, to the empire. After Nero blamed the Christians for the great fire, he unleashed what was known as an empire-wide persecution in which tens of thousands of Christians were martyred for their faith. Now, before that, uh, before he did that, there were some persecutions that happened here and there in isolated pockets, But after this incident, multitudes of Christians lost their lives, mostly in the Colosseum and in the arena for sport uh, throughout the empire. So this is not only a scary time to live, it's a very dangerous time to be a follower of Jesus. And based on the text, most scholars believe that Mark's original audience is written to Christians uh, in Rome who were being persecuted during this time. Now, quite a few scholars also believe that Mark is actually writing from the city of Rome. He, went, he came there with Peter, and he's writing to the church, to Christians in Rome. Uh, and whether that's really true or not, he's writing to uh, people who are being persecuted. Again, Roman historian Tacitus uh, describes some of the, the persecution that went on. Uh, you guys, you guys doing okay? Seminary class? Yeah? Okay. To one person. Great. <laughs> um, Tacitus says this, relevance in, in a few minutes, okay? But this is really uh, 
Um, at least I think, good stuff. So <laughs> um, Tacitus says this, therefore, to stop the rumor, Nero falsely charged with guilt and punished with the most fearful torture a class commonly called Christians who are hated for their abominations. Accordingly, first, those who are arrested who confess they were Christians, next, on their information, a vast multitude were convicted, not so much on the charge of arson as much as of hating the human race. Besides being put to death, they were made to serve as objects of amusement. They were clothed in the hides of wild beasts and torn to death by dogs. Others were nailed to crosses or set on fire to serve as evening lights to illuminate the night when daylight faded. And some of you may may have seen this picture. It's a picture of Christians who are now being put on a a large high pole, ready to be burned to to provide light as daylight faded. uh, Some scholars believe later on in Mark chapter one, uh, one verse 13 is actually a reference to the persecution that was happening empire-wide. And in that, uh, it says this, Jesus was with the wild animals. We'll get to that in like a month or so. But that, that was almost Mark's way of saying, hey, those of you in the arena being eaten alive by wild animals, Jesus is with you. And that is good news because this isn't just for people who have it all together. This is a book for people who are suffering, suffering hardships and trials, right? Any Hawaii fans here today? (laughs) This book is for you. (laughs) Oh, come on. (laughs) I mean, to be honest though, you know, we don't really know much about suffering in general, right? I mean, much less persecution. By the grace of God, we live in a time and a place where we can live and worship in relative uh, peace and security and safety. But around the world, Christians are, be, are being put to death and they are by far the most persecuted people group in the world. And instead of actually getting better, it's actually getting worse. More Christians are dying for their faith than ever before in human history. But here in America, that's obviously not the case. But, and this is not to compare in any way because it doesn't doesn't even hold a candle to the persecution they experience. But today, in Ann Arbor, uh, we do bear a cultural shame for following Jesus. Which, which can lead to a sense of personal embarrassment for being a Christian, which is a unique development in the history of America, right? In other words, you are looked down upon for being a Christian. Now, if you're uh, new to Ann Arbor and you've come from the west side of the state, you may think like, wow, that's pretty strange. But, you know, trust me, uh, live and uh, work and study in Ann Arbor long enough and you start to realize, man, uh, this is really true. The cultural shame Um, that that we experience, and some of you know that all too well. You have experienced um, rejection from your family and even friends. Some of you have been ridiculed by coworkers and even professors because of your faith in Jesus Christ. And although that's not the same thing as what they experienced in the first century, listen, the message is the same. You are not alone. Jesus is with you, and not only that, He knows what it's like. 
Remember, he was rejected by his own family member and friends, and he was eventually executed by the Roman government. So in the midst of all that, the the message of Mark is saying, hey, those of you who are rejected, who who are suffering cultural shame, persecution, Jesus is with you. And that makes a huge difference. Uh, how many of you, uh, and I'd like to see a uh, show of hands, uh, especially wives, okay, uh, have had the experience of really struggling or hurting or wrestling with something, and then you go and pour your heart out to your husband only to have him respond with a lot of cold, hard facts. Any wives? A few Come on, the rest of you, raise your hand. My wife raised her hand during the last service, right? (laughs) She did. And I had to confess, yeah, these last two weeks have been really rough for me. But um, but, um, now, is 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 there much consolation when that happens, wives? Absolutely not, right? But let's say... You're like, okay, can't share this with my husband. I'm going to go talk to my girlfriend, and, she, and you, sh- you pour out your heart to her. And then let's say she says this. You know what? I went through that very thing. And let's say that she has not only been through exactly what you have been through, but far worse and far more intensely. And after her, uh, she tells her story to you, let's imagine that she says this. You know what? I will be with you through everything that you go through. I will be right here by your side. No matter what you need, I will be with you. I learned from my wife these last two weeks, that makes all the difference in the world. And so no other religion actually says God has been through something that uh, is far worse and far more intensely than you have ever imagined No other religion says that or portrays that about God except Christianity. Christianity says that God came to earth, suffered, lived and suffered and died on the cross and not only knows what we're going through, but really he is with us now. So that's the original audience that Mark is writing to. Now, with all of that background out of the way, let's dive into uh, Mark. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me. We're going (laughs) to read through Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, We're not actually going to finish verse 1. We're going to continue next week. And man, at that rate, it's going to take us 20 years through Mark, right? Um, Mark chapter 1, verse 1. And and let me just say this too. If you have a Bible on your phone or a physical Bible, (laughs) please bring it. Uh, Take notes, underline. We're going to just walk through Mark over the next six semesters or so. Uh, kind of line by line. So uh, Mark starts off like this in the first verse. Um, and if you don't have your Bibles, I'd like you to read along with me. We're going to read Mark 1, verse 1. It's going to be in the English Standard Version. So join me as we read this f- first sentence together. Ready? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, this first sentence actually gives us a window into the entire gospel. 
right? And it it acts like a lens through which we will come to interpret everything else that comes in this gospel will be interpreted through that one sentence. What What Mark was primarily concerned about and why he wrote this in the first place was to answer the question of who Jesus really is. And he gives us the answer right in the beginning. Jesus is who? The son of God. But the way Mark starts this gospel is very interesting because he starts off, at least in the Greek, with the word arche, which is translated beginning. So in the Greek, it's beginning, uh, the beginning of, now if you think about that from a literary point of view, Uh, this seems quite ridiculous to say, well, the way I'm starting my book is to say this is the beginning of my book, right? Anybody ever read a classic novel that starts off that way? I bet not. In fact, I mean, who, who writes a book starting saying, hey, this is the beginning of my book? Well, duh, uh, if you want to write a classic, I mean, you, Mark, what, what, what is wrong with you? Uh, well, well, classics, let's think about them. Uh, let's play a little game here. How well do you know the first lines of famous books? Okay? There's three different levels. We'll start with the beginner's level. And if you know the answer, shout it out. Okay? No, uh, so, uh, uh, okay, we'll start with the first one. Ready? First one is this. In a hole in the ground, there lived a... All right. Yes. Okay, this is still beginner level. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four, Privet Drive, were proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. Harry Potter. Hi, Harry Potter. All right, pretty good. Now we go into the intermediate level, okay? Uh, if you know this, shout it out. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Tell two cities. Uh, another intermediate. Call me Ishmael. Moby Dick. All right. Now, expert level. There's only one question, okay? What, um, and if you get this, you, uh, I guess you win a prize, okay? Um, here we go. Mother died today, or maybe yesterday. I can't be sure. The strain. Oh, you were here the first service, Nick. That doesn't count. <laughs> but, Nick, you win the prize, which is just recognition. There you go. <laughs> Now, now, so who starts, a, <coughs> who starts such an important piece of work with the words, this is the beginning of my book? I mean, that sounds so undeveloped, so like crass. But you and I don't have first century ears. We read that, if you stop and think about it and go, well, yeah, duh, come on, Mark. But we completely miss the point that Mark is trying to make here. And he is making a point because he understood that uh, some of his readers and hearers would have caught this. What Mark is actually doing is he is alluding to the first sentence back in the book of Genesis, where it begins in English, what does it say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So Mark is actually trying to anchor his story of Jesus into a larger story that started way before the beginning of time. So if you read the original uh, in Genesis, uh, which is in Hebrew, the first two words in Genesis are beginning God. And then if you read in the original uh, in Greek, the gospel of Mark, it's beginning 
gospel. Beginning God, beginning gospel. And what Mark is trying to do is establish uh, the fact that the God who initiated creation in the beginning of time is also the God who initiates redemption and salvation for his people. In other words, it is all God. I mean, so uh, salvation is as dependent on the power of God as was the universe and the cosmos being created in the beginning. That means there's nothing we could do to earn a right standing with God. It is by grace. You don't earn a right standing by God. It's, it, it, it's, it's not because of your good behavior or your moral code of conduct. Rather, it is the gospel or the good news of Jesus that reconciles us to God. And so Mark begins, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Mark is a first century, uh, writing a first century biography about the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of, who is the main character? My goodness, that was weak. That's like the answer to all the questions in church, right? Jesus, at least 90%, right? Jesus. Uh, It's about Jesus Christ. And that means Jesus is the central character, not Peter, not James, not John, not Satan, not the chief priest, not Herod, not Pilate. Jesus is the central character in the story. And that may seem like, well, yeah, duh, but, but l- let me put it this way. If you're anything like me, you live your life as if you are the central character in the story of life. Am I right? Or am I alone? I'm really alone. All right, I'm alone in this, great, I'll preach to myself. And the, the primary motif that Mark is writing about is this. Jesus is the coming promised king foretold back from centuries and millennia ago. Jesus is God in the flesh, he has come to the earth, he has inaugurated this new kingdom that will outlast all the rulers and empires of this world. And so now we can start to ask, what does any and all of this mean for you and me thousands of years later on the other side of the world? Well, I think to start off, uh, I actually have just one application, (laughs) and it's this. When we think of uh, Mark's motif of Jesus as a king, I don't know that you and I actually get that, Jesus as king. That's not the language we often use because we live in a democracy where every person is their own king. In fact, even the president of the United States is technically an employee of the people. We vote the man or woman in and out of office. And that's, I mean, part of the beauty of democracy is that you are free to do whatever you want for the most part as long as you don't cause damage or, or harm other people. So this whole idea of king is really strange and foreign to us. Uh, And we think, man, king, monarchy, oppression, that's usually the image that we get. But this is the backbone of the Gospel of Mark. Now, at the same time, I will say, even though that word king may be very foreign to us, functionally, I would argue that we all have a king. We all have someone or something that we give ultimate allegiance to. Uh, We make sacrifices for, we expend time, energy, money, we serve and we worship and adore, worship by the way isn't just singing, but you worship it in your heart, you adore it, you, you relish it. 
And we are all being shaped and formed by something, right? The question is, who or what is it for you? Who or what is your king? And maybe you think, well, I, I don't have a, I don't know, I don't have a king. Well, think of it this way. What do you, what do you obsess about? What do you worry about? What do you get excited about? That might be a good indication of something or someone that has taken the place of Jesus in your life. A question that I often like to ask myself as I kind of, uh, uh, during introspection and prayer and meditation, which I think is a good way to kind of root out who is a king in my life, and, and that's this. I ask myself, what do you think about when you have nothing to think about? That might be a good clue as to who or what is the king in your life. And so the invitation of Jesus is, look, follow me as king, not as life coach. I'm not here to be your counselor or your therapist or your buddy. And if you're like me again, and again, obviously, I guess I'm, it's just myself, but I don't want a king. I'm fine as my own king. Thank you very much, Jesus. I want to do what I want to do with my life. Sure, I want God. Absolutely the same way I want cream in my coffee in the morning. Right? God will make my life a little easier, a little less dark, a little less bitter. But I want a God that exists for me. I want to be the main character in my story. And sure, I want God in there. You know, he could be like a supporting actor in my story. And in fact, you know, he, he should actually get an, uh, an Academy Award for best supporting actor. Yes, let's do that. But I want to be the main character it's my life. But we know that that is not the true narrative of the universe, right? You have been bought at a price. You have been rescued from sin by, by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so therefore, your life is not about your life. Your story is not about your story. Your story is wrapped up in something larger, greater, deeper, and far more interesting than, than your own life. And so that means following Jesus means reorienting your entire life around Jesus, saying, Jesus, you are the king of my life. You sit on the throne of my heart. You are the main character, and I am following your lead. Now, again, going back to the whole idea of king, again, king can kind of connote like a, a oppression and authority, but there's a difference when we follow King Jesus, and that's because of this. King Jesus, he came to the earth not like other rulers and kings. He didn't come to sit on a throne and rule when he came to earth. He came to earth so he could die on a cross. And rather than ruling, he came here to serve. And that's what we're going to see all throughout Mark's gospel. And so that means for us, we respond with worship, with awe and admiration and surrender. We're going to do that this morning. The first Sunday of each month, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And this is our response to saying, Jesus, you are the king of my life. I would encourage you, before you come up <coughs> to partake of the elements, to actually maybe write down or identify the king that is sitting on the throne of your heart. And as you come up, to say, you know, Jesus, I want you back into, in that place. Come and take the bread, dip it in the juice, partake of it. 
the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took unleavened bread and broke it and said, this is my body given for you. He took wine and he poured it out and said, this is the blood of the new covenant shed for you. And he tells us, do this in remembrance of him. If you're a follower of Jesus, we want to invite you to come and partake of it. If you're on this side of the sanctuary, you want to come down this aisle uh, and then go back to your seats in the middle or the outside aisle. Same with this side. Come down this, this aisle here and then return to your seats. Uh, there's also communion servers in the back. We also have a gluten-free option only in the back as well too. And so if you want to do that, you can head to the back. And as we do this too, as you return to your seats, would you remain standing? And as you remain standing, just sing the words of this song and let it be a prayer, a prayer of surrender to Jesus today. So we invite you to come forward. Let's celebrate the Lord's Supper together.